Hello, hello, my dear ones, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with My Higher Self. How are you? How is it going? How is the post-eclipse season for you guys? Um, I am excited to continue our conversation about Earth Elementals today. We skipped it last week because... It was time to talk about the eclipse, and I feel like now we're back to our regular scheduled programming. Couple of housekeeping items before we dive in. If you're not meditating with me yet on our Sacred Universe podcast, perhaps you should. We are uploading new meditations on that podcast every Sunday, um, and they um, range of uh, the the topics range from something that is fairly mainstream, such as various heart meditations to something that is pretty out there. And some of the journeys that I have prepped for you um, are going to be quite exciting. Um, From, I don't know, going to, say, the fairy or elven kingdom down to meditating with one of the tarot cards or diving into, let's say, the temperance. 14th arcana so we're going to be making some pretty magical journeys so if you're not a part of that i think you should be it is our sacred universe it's available as a podcast on apple podcast spotify and a few other platforms but those are the main ones so come check it out if you haven't already and on that note why don't we dive right into part two of earth elementals um, thank you so much for sending me all the fee- all the feedback on the episodes that I did about um, elementals in general, not just earth elementals. A lot of you are resonating with this content. It really does warm my heart because I think it the time the time is here, you guys, to wake up that memory, the collective memory, the remembrance of all of those elemental kingdoms, elementals take and play a critical role in every ecosystem planet earth is no exception elementals were here before humans were they are integral to the survival of the ecosystem of planet earth they are wonderful beings they could be some of the most amazing spirit guides for you and as we're having conversations and exploring um, all of the different types of elementals Some of you may feel the stirring inside. Some of you may sense a resonance. And that means that you're meant to work with that kingdom. Now, we all of us have affinity towards certain elements. Uh, We all have our affinity towards certain elementals because of that. As such, you may find that If you already are, and even before, if you were interested about information, let's say on fairies or dragons, um, once you start diving deeper, uh, potentially thanks to this podcast or any of the other information you come across, you may notice that those beings start to quite actively and proactively appear in your meditations. You may stumble upon more information about them just randomly. All of those are signs. Elementals are proactively reaching out to humanity right now. Not everybody, just the ones that they feel are deserving, the ones that they feel um, they could help. So I am sure that if you are listening to this podcast, there is at least one, if not more than one, um, type of elementals that is reaching out to work 
with you, right? And that is why it is very special for me to be able to um, have this conversation with you. Part of it is also activation um, and hopefully stir some remembrances in, in, in you guys. All right. So today we have some fun elementals to talk about. We are going to start with probably the best known, um, you know, one of the better known um, classes of elementals. So we're going to be talking about the elves. Oh my, um, the elves are still fairly prominent on planet Earth. They are beautiful beings. Um, I would say um, in the collective of humanity, they are right alongside with fairies in terms of being fairly prominent, fairly well remembered. Now, of course, there's a lot of myth and legend associated with the elves, um, depending on kind of like where you go. Um, Christmas elves seems to be the most popular rendition of version of how human beings connect to elves. I, I hate to say this, there, <laughs> there are no Christmas elves. I hate to break your heart, guys. Um, and if there are any children listening to this, I apologize. I don't mean to debunk the Santa myth at all. But, um, you know, let, let's talk about the elves and, and, and who they are. Um, once you start working with the Elven Kingdom, at least initially, and when you're new, um, it's actually a little bit hard to differentiate, to differentiate between elves and fairies. Those two kingdoms are, they have somewhat similar vibrations and they have somewhat similar intentions. Now, fairies belong to the air element whereas elves belong to the earth element. So they are quite different. Um, they, uh, both elves and fairies, both of these kingdoms have beings of different height or size. Um, you have a lot of elves that are actually quite small. Uh, and there are some fairies as well that are small, more in the pixie kingdom. Um, now, the elves that are small, they can range from like two inches, literally, that's how small they run, up to maybe five and seven inches. Like there are a lot of elves in that department. Um, those elves are really, really active. They live in nature and um, they would generally pick a very small territory or area for them to oversee or to take care of. They are incredibly, incredibly attached to the, like the ecosystems that they inhabit. Now, the one thing to remember about elves is, whereas for fairies, the current vibrations of planet Earth are quite harsh, um, elves still exist on the face of planet Earth. Uh, fairies sometimes may choose to come up, um, especially the smaller fairies, the larger humanoid type of fairies that are more like, they're called the gentry, they're really more like human height. Um, those tend to stay uh, within inner Earth. Um, unlike elves, elves live um, next to large natural features usually um, on the um, on, on top of the planet, right? Uh, on outer earth, if you will. Um, probably the majority of elves are smaller in size in terms of the ones that exist right now. Um, and there really are um, not fans of showing themselves and revealing themselves to humans. So most likely, um, it would be very, very hard for you to find or see 
an elf with your naked eye unless the elf chooses to show or reveal itself to you. Um, part of the reason is that elves are masters at camouflage uh, and they're masters of illusion. And that refers to elves of any kind, whether that is baby elves, like small in terms of height and size or larger elves. They all are masters of camouflage. Um, they had to learn to coexist with humans, right? Because they live on outer earth. They live right among, uh, among us. Um, and at the same time, our two kingdoms are not terribly compatible. Um, now it is indeed hard to find an elemental kingdom with which humanity would be compatible. So I guess this doesn't come as a surprise, does it? Um, so elves, they've learned the tricks of kind of blending into the surroundings and making themselves invisible um, to human, human eyes because the encounters that they did have with humanity uh, left them, you know, uh, love them wanting, so to say. And especially as it relates to like um, really, really small elves. Um, human beings are not very, very tolerant of beings that are a lot of smaller um, than, than humans, right? Like, you know, it, it is just a habit unless something is a pet. You know, we don't really treat it with that much reverence. So um, that's why the smaller elves really hide away. Um, larger elves, um, and in, in general, elves, elves um, live in communities, right? So they love, um, they have their own communities. They generally divide uh, based on the type of elf that they are. Um, and you have a few. So you have your forest elf, and that is probably the most prominent type of, um, type of elf on planet Earth. You have your um, cave elves, or sometimes they like to be referred to as crystal elves. So these are the elves that work with the crystalline grid of the planet. These are the elves that, um, you know, I will be telling you a little bit more um, about in, in, in detail uh, a little later. Um, you have elves that congregate around bodies of water. Um, so like river elves. Sometimes you have lake elves as well. Uh, you have meadow elves as well. So essentially uh, different kinds of um, natural features. Very rarely you would have mountain elves, although um, those are far and in between. Um, and um, if you do find those mountain elves, those actually are more on the solitary side. So if an elf wants to go through being a hermit, you know, they, they would go into the mountains. Um but very often it's, and what is most prominent right now on planet Earth, they are forest elves. Um, that's the most prominent kingdom. Now, um, naturally, um, most of you, if not 100% of you, have never seen an elf with a physical eye. Um, there are multiple reasons for that. I mentioned that elves are really, really good at camouflage. So they have their pockets um, almost of land, pockets of land. And they cast fairly large illusions over those pockets of land um, to appear as something else or to almost repel humans. Um, very often it's in remote forests or, you know, ravines or something along those lines. Um, you know, a human may be glancing at a particular natural feature or part of the forest and, you know, they may not want to go in there for whatever reason, or it may feel scary or spooky. That's another way that elves like to play, where they're almost like that um, place is repelling humans. 
Um, and so it's almost like they, they um, work and operate um, through cloaking spells. And those cloaking spells are essentially domes. And so elves would cover up fairly large chunks of land, um, you know, for, for their purposes, right? For their, you know, village, for the lack of a better word, uh, or a commune. And so they would kind of like use a cloaking spell and other um, camouflage type of mechanisms so that they can stay away from humans. And so, of course, humans are, on, on you know, um, essentially... A, a, are largely unaware how prominent the elves are on planet Earth today. So that is a pretty unique kingdom uh, of beings. So going back to my earlier point about what's the difference between elves and fairies, I wanted to address that in case you were wondering. So fairies, as I mentioned, um, carry the energy of the pink ray. So the, they are very, very connected to higher heart energies. Um, they are also all about beauty and harmony. So if I were to try to really condense what fairies are all about to two words, I would say beauty and harmony, right? So they're about beautifying things, harmonizing things. Elves are a little bit different. They work with the energies of the emerald spectrum, still the heart energies, but they're green. So it's your lower heart. It's your heart chakra. It's your anahata area they are more concerned with living things and growing things so they're all about life and they're all about growth not necessarily beauty or harmony and that is a fairly big differentiator because how elven magic works as opposed to how fairy magic works is going to be really dependent on the energies that they carry and also their lifestyles, because of that, are quite different. So what I find with fairies, for instance, is they appreciate the finer things in life. So they truly have their royalty. And the royalty of the fairy kingdom um, is a very distinct. They live in beautiful um, surroundings. Very often they have a lot of jewels. Very often they have a lot of finer things in life. So for the fairies, you know, having fine china... And, you know, I don't know, silver spoons or golden plates is completely normal. Whereas the elves, I find, are a lot more, they're closer to nature. And even if you get one, let's say, as your spirit guide, and very often spirit guides come with gifts, right? Or they want to give you some type of um, magical objects. If, they, if, if you really befriend them, that is what um, one of those elemental guides is going to be tempted to share with you so if you start working with the fairy kingdom very often they would give you a precious jewel or like a piece of jewelry or something along those lines or like a fine garment elves not really with elves you're gonna get a twig you're gonna get an acorn you're gonna get a dried leaf um or like a petal of a flower that type of thing if you know what i mean um and because and and not by the way each of these objects may have magical powers right um, elves are really, really um, good magic weavers. They're really good at taking a natural flow of energy. And what I mean by that is taking a flow or stream of energy directly from nature and condense condensing that energy stream specifically into an object. So they may take the might of a river, for instance, and um, they may infuse um a flower petal with the might of the river 
or the cleansing properties of the ocean or something. And then they may gift that to you, right? So they make all these very powerful amulets and talismans uh, made of natural things. So um, if you ever get lucky enough to um, get an elf as a friend or get an elf as a spirit guide, they may show you some fascinating things about natural magic, about how to take things that are very plentiful in nature and how to turn them into objects that can heal, protect, um, that can um, remove curses, help you get rich. I mean, honestly, their, their magic is fairly sophisticated and robust, so anything is possible for the elf, but you would notice with them a tendency where they like to use all kinds of natural objects um, as, as, as their like special magical um, things that they, they like to share. Um, okay, so, and, and also like in terms of their dwellings, um, let's say it's a forest elf. Very often they would build their dwellings right, um, like, you know, on either on top of trees or like around trees or sometimes like mul like uniting multiple trees um, to build the dwellings. And very often, even when you do see those, although they're generally concealed from human eyes, um, they read almost like a natural landscape more than a house. Um, so they don't really use any objects that they would not perceive to be living. Um, and so um, that is quite, um, it's quite endearing to watch, actually. Um, elves. Um, again, what, what is it that they do all day, every day? Maybe that's what we can explore now. Depends on the kind of elf. Um, very often, like a lot of other elementals, they would act as natural protectors of the habitats that they have selected. So any forest, let's say, that has a large population of elves is always going to be better protected. Those are the forests that somehow are always going to be preserved. Uh, these are the forests where, you know, humans are not necessarily going to just you know, take them over and cut down all the trees. Those tend to be the healthiest ecosystems in general because elves have a very holistic view of what a healthy ecosystem is. And so they are also natural born healers. And so they would heal every aspect of the ecosystem. Um, and that happens quite naturally to them. Even their tears, for instance, are very healing, right? So you could have like a branch or, you know, like a branch of a tree, for instance, like broken. Uh, like if an elf uh, sheds his or her tears um, where like there is a breaking point, um, that tree uh, or that twig or that branch goes back into its original state. So it's a restorative type of magic that the elves have. Um, they also... Um, um, so like when I said they bring um, ecosystems together, what they're really good at is um, diagnosing what a particular ecosystem is missing and finding the missing piece, adding it back into the ecosystem so that the full ecosystem may thrive. You know, so um, let's say with um, the imminent, well, I shouldn't be saying that, uh, now that the bees are, um, you know, starting to become more and more um, harder and harder to come by, 
um, elves would come into certain ecosystems um, that don't have enough bees and they would, um, you know, they would note that that is the case and they would invite bees to join that particular ecosystem. And so they've saved a lot of ecosystems actually for planet Earth. Um, we actually owe a lot to the Elven Kingdom without even realizing. Um, another type of Elven um, elemental that is worth mentioning are the ones that work with the crystalline grids of the planet. Um, those uh, creatures are very connected to the mineral kingdom, obviously, right? Because it's um, these are the ones that like to be called crystal elves. Very often they live in caves or underground caverns. Um, not always very far from the surface because every elf loves, loves, loves sunlight, right? And that's, for instance, the difference between a dwarf, let's say, slash a, a gnome and an elf. Uh, gnomes or dwarfs could li live years, if not decades, without sunlight, and they would be fine with that. Whereas an elf would slowly wither away. So they're very, very much dependent on sunlight um, for their happiness um, and for their health as well. So um, that's why elves, even the, the, the ones that live in caves and underground caverns, they make sure that they have a very, a very easy and very quick exit if they wanted to go in the sun and just, you know, connect to the sun energies. Now, the elves um, that work with the crystalline grid of the planet were the first elves to originally um, be introduced to planet Earth. Um, they are pretty fascinating creatures. So those types of elves, um, they work with crystals both on the physical level as well as on the, on the energetic level. So when planet Earth was first forming, uh, elves were invited to help configure the grids of the planet. Um, they were invited to configure the ley lines. They were not the only type of elementals that helped with the construction of the ley lines, but they were one of one of the main elementals that helped. Um, they had some very good architects as well in the Elven Kingdom that helped uh, put together the whole network and the whole framework of how ley lines are going to be connected, what are going to be the points of power, how the shockers of the world are going to be located as well. Um, so elves were in charge of that. Um, very often, elves, just like fairies, work with quartz crystal. Um, but whereas, um, you know, your, your fairies would most likely work with the rose quartz, your elven kingdom generally works with crystal quartz, right? And so originally, the ley lines were really, really the network of how crystal quartz uh, was um, kind of like lo located and what crystal quartz crystals were located um, on planet Earth. Um, elves also got a chance to rearrange the crystals within the crust of the earth, physically as well as etherically. So elves are really good at building etheric crystals. An etheric crystal is kind of like a copy of a physical crystal. It works exactly the same way, only it's non-physical. And um, elves that work with the crystalline grid of the planet, even today, are very similar to what they used to be in the days of old. And so essentially they have two main states. They have their physical appearance and they have their physical body, 
but they also spend um, a good chunk of their time, sometimes up to 50% of their existence, in what a lot of humans would refer at, to as an out-of-body experience. So it's almost like they astral travel all the time. And the reason they astral travel is because when they're out of body, it allows their etheric body, their energy body to move, move freely. And when it does happen, that is when they get to impact the etheric crystals of the planet. Uh, when I say impact, what do I mean? Um, there are a few ways how elves work with the crystals. Um, the first one is um, arranging the specific angles um, that the crystals are positioned within the crust of planet Earth. Um, and again, those are physical and etheric crystals, right? So um, even one elf, just because of how connected they are to the crystal, um, even just one elf can move, I think, about 10 times um, more, 10x more, um, in terms of the weight of the crystal compared to the weight of their body. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty fascinating thing to witness. Uh, but also in terms of etheric crystals, you know, one little elf can move the etheric crystal that is, you know, the size of the state of Texas. I'm just saying, uh, pretty fascinating to watch. Uh, the reason that again, like they they would rotate crystals quite often and they would tilt crystals. So they are always rearranging crystals. Why do they do that? Energies on planet earth shift all the time. Uh, Based on planetary alignments, you, go, you guys know that astrology, Mercury retrograde, eclipses, you name it. Um, there's always something, you know, major planets in conjunction. Depending on that, certain crystals that are pivotal need to be rearranged in the crust of the planet Earth. That is the job of elves, even up to this day. Um, anytime the magnetic um, poles... Um, of the earth flipped or you know anything around the magnetism of the planet changed the crystalline grids had to be completely rearranged um, and sometimes even build anew so that is a great service that elves are rendering to planet earth um, so if you are very much into uh, minerals if you are you know if you would like to start channeling potentially more unique information about the different types of crystals um, if you'd like to develop a deeper relationship with the crystals themselves and a practice and start getting, you know, specific advice for yourself around, you know, what you should work with, what type of energies belong with you, as well as crystal magic, getting an elf as a spirit guide could be amazing for you guys because certain elves, they are literally the most knowledgeable on crystals outside of let me think like who else knows crystals quite that well dragons maybe dragons are extremely connected to crystals because dragons love treasure duh but not even them because dragons dragons are experts on crystals that are almost like more extraterrestrial because dragons like i said earlier uh, in, in you know the past episodes Dragons move around between dimensions. So dragons may tell you about fifth dimensional crystals, seventh dimensional crystals, eleventh dimensional crystals. Whereas elves are really experts on planet Earth and the crystals of planet Earth. And maybe a little bit of, you know, surrounding planets because they actually are 
radars when it comes to crystals. And so even being on planet Earth, they're actually sensing the crystals that are within the depth of Mars, within the depth of Venus, and everything in the solar system. Like every single crystal in the solar system, they are sensing in their bodies and they cannot help it. it it's, it's kind of just, you know, crystals talk to them. So it's pretty fascinating. Another thing worth mentioning with elves is they are incredible herbologists. So if you are into um, herbs, um, as flower essences, essential oils, um, any kind of um, medicinal use uh, for, uh, you know, medicinal plants, elves could be amazing teachers for you. They can be amazing companions. Again, if you find one uh, or if you develop a relationship with one as a spirit guide, they can even tell you where to go gather certain plants. Now, um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, the, the true information about gathering medicinal plants have been lost on planet Earth. Um, every plant is meant to be gathered in a very particular way at a very specific time. That is when its potency is the strongest. And that type of knowledge is well preserved within the Elven Kingdom. Um, yeah, there are also obviously elves, like I said, elves that are connected to the water. Granted, I, I'm still calling them earth elementals, but they're mostly hybrids. So, um, let's say river elves, um, are the ones that are a hybrid between an earth and a water, um, element, mostly leaning though, if I were to pick one, mostly leaning into earth, right? So like 70% earth elemental. Um, those have a very um, good magic to be able to reset things, right? Um, water, again, going back to cleansing properties of water. So your water or river elves are really good at resetting things, uh, including memories, <laughs> So those are the types of creatures that, you know, if they come across uh, human beings or they choose to come across human beings, they can wipe up your, uh, wipe up your uh, memories pretty quickly because it's all about resetting, right? So they can rewind things. Um, uh, yeah, they can rewind things. And so um, they're kind of funny because they can travel because of water. Water is actually connected to time. I don't know if I've mentioned that. Uh, I may have. Um, so they actually have um, an ability to travel um, short periods of time into the past and into the future at any given point in time. It's generally about an hour plus minus an hour. So they have this, uh, this interesting, uh, peculiar properties or abilities um, to, I guess, uh, potentially change time because they can uh, or change the past or the future for that matter because they can travel back and forth, specifically for the water elves. Um, another interesting thing that we kind of haven't really spoken about, but, um, human beings, um, have, in, you know, interbred <laughs> with certain elementals more than others, just because certain elementals are, uh, more friend, not friendly, I guess maybe more tempted by humans is the right way of saying it. And again, like we have long history with elves, you guys. And uh, it's not like elves who are always, always and forever hiding from humanity. But I would say of all the, um, of the population of the earth right now, 7.8% um, have trace amounts of elven DNA, which is quite a lot. 
actually, because for instance, the second highest um, elemental um, contents within the DNA would be a fairy kingdom, and that is just 1.2% of humanity have a trace amount of fairy DNA, and everything else from there is even smaller. With mermaids, you have about half a percent of humanity have trace amounts of mermaid DNA, and everybody else is even smaller than that, uh, like less frequent. Um, with certain, you know, elementals not at all interbreeding with humans, like, yeah, uh, kind of makes sense. It's, I think it's hard to breed with a tree. But um, the reason I'm telling you this is some of you would really resonate with the elven content or the fairy content. And it's not just because you potentially lived a past life there or really love fairy tales or really love folklore, uh, but it's, it's because you may have um, elven DNA, right? Um, now, there's also all kinds of morbid stories around like elves stealing maidens at one point and how humans that get in, in, into the elven kingdom or get accepted, um, you know, into the elven community, how those change. Um, you know, it, it happened every which way, actually. So certain humans did join um, el elven villages uh, and then certain um, elves actually joined uh human um you know human communities as well and and so there there was a fair amount of crossbreeding um for these two kingdoms in particular um and yeah so there is you know what i guess part of the good news is um if you have elven dna some of the things that elves know you know by definition Right, so it would be very easy for you to access the collective memories of the elves if you have trace elven DNA. Now, of course, people who used to live, uh, you know, leave their houses to go to live with the elves. Um, you know, if they ever came back, they felt very different. Um, their energy becomes, you know, essentially when you uh, cross over to the um, the elemental kingdom of elves, your energy thins out almost. So they are, um, there's a lot less fire actually with, within the, um, uh, within the elves and there's a lot more fire with humans. And that is why elves, um, you know, the, your perception of elves would be that they maybe are a little bit more aloof and colder, not necessarily in terms of body temperature, but colder in terms of temperament. Um, and so it was very hard, um, you know, the adjustment period may have been hard, but the interesting part about humans and elves is whichever way you go, uh, whichever way, like, we migrate, whether, like, it's a human that's migrating to the elven uh, kingdom or the, the elf that's migrating to the human kingdom, um, after a certain period of adjustment, it was actually very easy for both of our kingdoms, uh, for both of, you know... Mm, for both of us to readjust to the other. And so we're actually really good at mimicking the other. So that's the fascinating thing about elves. All right, what else can they help you with? Um, elves are, like I said, really good healers. So they can also advise you on how to heal your own body. Um, elves work really well, both on the physical level, on the energetic level. 
maybe not so well on emotional level. I I wouldn't want to don't go to elves for emotional healing because their emotions are very very different. The way they perceive love is very different. Um yeah, their emotions are of a different spectrum. You would find that they don't experience emotion the same way. Um, their range of ups and downs is a lot narrower. So their highs are less high and their lows are less low. Like you're most likely not going to see a depressed elf or an anxious elf for that matter. They just don't experience those um, frequencies and those frequencies are distortions actually even for humans. So that on elves, elves can really help you heal your heart. Um, they can really help share their beautiful emerald energy of the heart with you. So they could be amazing creatures to reach out to for any type of heart trauma. Or if you're starting to work with your Anahata center, with your heart chakra, they can be great teachers for you. They can also pass on healing magic to you as well. By just pressing their, you know, hands, um, you know, on your chest, that could be quite a healing, healing exercise. I also personally find it fascinating if you get one, like an elf, as um, a guardian for yourself or as a friend. I, I find it fascinating to go and look at their habitats and how they've rearranged their habitats, because it's almost like if the forest floor was a living room, because they have these like cute things all around, like little hooks for, you know, for clothing, but they're so like amazingly inter in introduced into the ecosystem that it feels so organic. And I'm like, if humans could build it this way it would be amazing um it would be just so pretty um yeah uh, elves totally believe in coexistence and they really don't believe in like killing murdering or you know shifting an ecosystem to fit their ne needs in fact every ecosystem that they come into they make better uh, and then they leave better off so this is definitely a great lesson that i think we all could learn now um Elves, um, elves are interesting because um, although they at one point had, um, you know, they, they collaborated a lot with the fairy kingdom, they've always felt the fairy kingdom and the fairies were a little bit stuck up. So that's that. Um, and they've always found, for instance, gnomes or dwarves to be rough around the edges. And oh, another thing is that another thing that elves love is obviously dancing and song and music. Um, so they, they do compose music quite a lot. Um, they also, one thing that the um, elves do, they also um, essentially the, the way their magic works is by composing, shall I say, or creating new species of plants. So elves like crossbreeding uh, different plant species to get other plant species um, and so the, and they do that all the time now not every single plant that they create every single plant that they create goes mainstream sometimes they would just grow those types of hybrids only inside of the pockets that are invisible to humanity but I just found that um, I just found that fascinating so again anything you wanted to learn about plants elves are your folks um, yeah so that's that on the elven kingdom. Um, 
feel like there is uh, a question in the collective about the Elven Kingdom. So if you have a question, I am ready to receive it. What is your question? The question is, what is the best way to work with the elves? Uh, like, how would you connect with them? Would you go to like a natural feature and connect with them? Um, to be honest, I think that the first and the easiest is to try to connect with them via meditation. Because, you know, just trying to look for natural habitat, I mean, that's you're going to be tight pressed to do that anyhow, right? So um, I first recommend connecting to the Elven Kingdom through meditation, right? Um, ideally, you would know which type of elf you would want to connect to, whether it's a forest elf, uh, a crystal elf, or a river elf. And those are the most populous. Um, and depending on which one you would want to connect to, you would either imagine, you would essentially imagine their habitat, a river, a forest, or an underground cavern. And you would ask one to reveal itself. Elves are actually fairly friendly, believe it or not, especially when, when you're in the etheric realm. They're very friendly. A lot of them spend a lot of time in out of body, so there's always somebody to talk to. And that's how I would start building my connection with elves if I were you. And then down the road, they also communicate a lot with symbols, so they may leave you like leaves or little feathers or like you know, other like the small objects. And so like slowly but surely there is a trust that is developed, but they're they're definitely on the shy side. And so don't, you know, don't be surprised if they only want to communicate with you uh, via like meditations or dreams. That is completely normal. Um, and, you know, you can still get so much from, from, from those kinds of uh, relationships. All right. Well, thank you for the question. That was good. Moving on to another type of elemental, we're going to be talking about the Nagas. Um, Nagas and Naginis, although I just call them Nagas to be to be fair, because Naga is supposed to be the masculine, Nagini is supposed to be the feminine. I just call them Nagas. Um, I find these creatures to be fascinated. So these are your um, snake elementals however they're not really fully snake technically um they are a hybrid between a human and a snake and they have three formats so they have um you know their what um, one type of form they take is just a snake outright another type of form that they take is a human or a humanoid uh, but to be fair, uh, when they are humanoid, uh, very often their eyes have slits, uh, kind of like um, a reptilian would. And then they also have a hybrid. And in terms of hybrids, I've seen different versions of hybrids very often. Hybrid meaning half, uh, half snake, half human. Very often the bottom part of their body would be the snake and the top of their body right around like uh, above the waist would be a human and um yeah that is that is the form that they like to use for meditation or um when they're recharging is is the hybrid uh but everywhere else they prefer one or the other the snake or the humanoid form so the nagas are interesting um technically when i say the snake um, they have, um, the Nagas are mostly black snakes. 
Um, and they have two um, types of uh, snakes. So at the upper echelon of their society, you have the, cobra, the cobras. And so it's almost like their royalty as well as their nobility, as well as their, um, I don't know, merchants. <laughs> Whoever is like after nobility, the, 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 you know, yeah, I guess merchants. Um, the ones with entrepreneurs, whatever, the ones with, with money and resources. Um, those tend to be cobras as well. And then you have kind of like everybody else, like the supporting, um, you know, pillars of, of that society and their normal snakes. They um, they don't really have the cobra, you know, impressive heads. Uh, they're mostly black. Very, very infrequently would you see a naga that is a white cobra. Um, it has happened before. Um, there is a white co cobra at, you know, at the top of the echelon of their society right now, but that is quite rare. It's kind of like being an albino. So most, most of them are black. Um, there's a very fine line um, that I would like to explain between an elemental and everything else. <laughs> and that's why I think like some of the creatures I'll be telling you about, it's debatable if they should be in the elemental kingdom. I firmly believe that if I am giving you the information about the, uh, you know, and calling a particular race an elemental, I have reason to do that, right? It's not random. So um, an elemental for me is a race that is incredibly connected to planet Earth. And so it's, it's like it is feeding from the planet Earth, but it's also feeding planet Earth as well. And so it is a very symbiotic relationship. There is not going to be one elemental being that is even remotely able to cause harm to the ecosystem of planet Earth. And not only that, but they have become native to planet Earth, right? A lot of things have been built around these types of elemental beings. So I almost cannot distinguish them from the planet and they're almost like one and the same entity, if that makes sense, at a, from a higher perspective. And so the Nagas have been on this planet for so long. And initially, by the way, they were an extraterrestrial race. They were not really uh, born of the Earth. But then when they came here, planet they came here fairly early in the game. Planet Earth was still in, in formation. And maybe formation, maybe that's not technically correct, but... It was in its nascent stages as a planet. Gaia was very young and Gaia was volatile. So climates would change like nobody's business. She, you know, she was very young. And because of that, um, it was actually really hard for a lot of elementals to survive here for any, you know, not just elementals, for anybody to survive here. And the Nagas proved extremely resilient and they helped heal um, the relationship that planet Earth had with some of its fires. So initially when the Nagas came with these uh, cobra, you know, humanoid hybrids, extraterrestrials came, uh, planet Earth really couldn't get her fire under control. So she had a lot of volcanoes um, and she, you know, um, in also in the mantle, inside of the mantle, in, in, in her crust, in her core, it was a very volatile core. And, um, you know, the planet was overheated um, at one point. And so the Nagas came and they helped the consciousness of Gaia to come to terms with her fire, come to terms with her feisty energies, um, come to terms with that almost like 
adolescent rebellious spirit and grow into her mother uh, type, archetype, right? Into her um, more sustaining, more supportive facet, right? And so because of that, Nagas were actually given a seat at the table. And there are about nine elemental races that are considered core to planet Earth. Like if those nine elementals were to die out completely, planet Earth would be in a world of trouble. And the Nagas are one of the nine. Um, the elves is another. Fairies are another. Um, there, there are a few. Um, dwarves. Um, and, you know, you also have dragons and you also have... Um, phoenix birds in there as well and bees actually quite interestingly yeah i know um it's it's fascinating uh th those nine original elementals that are considered uh almost like the founding elementals so nagas were one and so again they were initially just um extraterrestrials that chose to stay and chose to help build this planet to what it is now currently the nagas don't really reside too much um in midgard on middle earth um, they uh, live uh, two levels below, actually, two levels below us. Um, if, been, if you've been listening to my episodes about um, elementals, I mentioned this, that there are eight other parallel Earths to planet Earth. Four above us are considered angelic realms, four below us are considered demonic realms. So the Naga kingdom decided to dwell um, two levels below us, right? So in the, I guess, the the third from the bottom or the second from, from us, um, if that makes sense. Um, and they're essentially, the way you would generally uh, go between these parallel Earths, if you, for instance, if you cannot astral travel, um, but there are points within the planet, or there is a point, rather, that is considered to be a central axis or the axis mundi. Uh, the main axis of the world, which is the same thing as the tree of life, frankly, or the Yggdrasil tree or the Bodhi tree or any of those trees, right? And those trees are really famous for connecting the nine worlds together, right? Our world, which is the middle, and then the four above and the four below, which makes nine. Again, something uh, like that has been, you know, spoken about in the Norse mythology, if you want to read it up. Um, so there's there's been some fascinating accounts. So the reason I love uh, the myth um, in the Garden of Eden about Eve and Adam and Eve partaking of the apple and being tempted by the snake is because that kind of tells you and gives you a lot of hints into how the Naga kingdom operates. So it was decided that the Nagas at one point were going to rule the underworld. Underworld is a real place. Or like I said, all the four worlds beneath us are considered underworld so when you're reading up on Hades and Persephone being uh, kings of the underworld or a king and queen of the underworld if you will if you're reading about Osiris being in charge of the underworld all of those are not hellish worlds or anything those are just the world those are parallel realities you guys right so um yeah if that makes sense so all, that underworld it is truly under our planet as it relates to the Yggdrasil tree, um, as it relates to that tree that connects all these dimensions, if you will. Although dimensions is not like a strictly correct way of thinking about, but we can think of those as, you know, those parallel Earths as almost like being in different pockets of reality. So it's not technically incorrect to think of them as being in different dimensions. Um, 
So the Nagas rule, and they really rule, they are a ruling elemental class. They're not a subordinate elemental class. They're the kind of elemental class that calls a lot of shots. And um, they exist in, in the underworld. Now, um, if um, the Nagas right now are probably a lot more prominent in the Hindu mythology. Uh, the most prominent there. There's a little bit about them in the Buddhist tradition as well. Um, if you guys are familiar with the Hindu mythology, you would know that there's been this war between the Nagas and the Garudas, who were this massive birds of prey, kind of like an eagle, only bigger. And there was this war uh, for the longest time, and, and they really were on the opposite ends. Garudas were actually also extraterrestrials. And in general, in our um, galaxy, as well as neighboring galaxies, um, the Nagas and Garudas never really get along that well. So essentially any planet that the two meet, they'd have a fight. And it's it's one or the other tends to win. But in, in this particular case, what ended up happening, uh, the Nagas were allotted this, um, you know, the underworld or one, uh, one of the worlds that, are, that were under. Um, by the way, they get progressively like lower in terms of vibration, if that makes sense, or denser in terms of energy. So the second from us is not terrible. It's not too bad. Um, if, if you go and visit that sometime, you know, whether, you know, through an astral projection out of body or just in meditation. And by the way, I'm transmitting the codes to you right now. So if you wanted to go there, you could. Um, it's not like it's completely unattainable to you. Um, so the Nagas um, at one point, um, and they're tricky, you know, and sorry, I what, let me finish one thought and then I'll tell you about the Garudas. I completely forgot where I was going with my Adam and Eve analogy because the great serpent that tempted Eve was not Satan or Lucifer or devil or whoever. It was actually um, one of the Naga kingdom, um, you know, one of the Nagas essentially. Um, uh, not just anybody, it was one of their, uh, one of their nobility. And to be fair, they do sometimes collaborate with the demonic kingdom, um, although this one was not technically a collaboration, because sometimes the Nagas would take it upon themselves to, you know, lead humanity towards where humanity needs to go. But sometimes they would, they would go about it in devious ways. And in this particular case, um, while the Nagas, well, and, and one, one of the things, the Nagas are always the symbol of wisdom and they're always the symbol of knowledge. Um, the Nagas have some of the most impressive libraries on, um, that you would find and access to libraries. And I mean, physical libraries as well as access to the Akashic libraries of, um, you know, any being in our, um, in our galaxy. So they're, you know, some of the best record keepers as well. So they're quite fascinating because of that, they've always historically stood for knowledge. And so, um, the Nagas, despite the fact that they are confined, not really all, all the way that confined, or that they originally were assigned the underworld to watch over, um, it is the one kind of elemental that gets to travel up and down the tree, the Idrisil tree, that connects the nine worlds. So the Naga, as long as the Naga sticks to the axis mundi, to the center um, point, right, or the tree, they can go to the most angelic realm 
and they can descend into the depth of the demonic realms. Like they can go any of the nine. Um, and so um, that is actually one of their favorite pastimes. Nagas really like to travel this way. It's like, you know, some people go to France and Nagas go <laughs> up and down the nine worlds. Um, so they were just traveling. There was this one uh, snake, serpent, um, cobra, actually, a black one, uh, traveling up and down the Yggdrasil tree in Midgard. Um, you know, it just happened so that um, at the time, the Axis Mundi, which actually shifts all the time, but at the time it was smack in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And so the serpent was observing actually Adam and Eve as they were created. He was first observing the creation, to be fair. Um, he was observing how the, the, you know, they were created and observing everything that they did and did not have as part of that creation, right? And so um, very often the Nagas, you know, um, they would, uh, again, through their devious ways, right? Um, they teach you a lot, but they also don't always divulge all the, all the information. And so whereas it ended up that the information that the Naga imparted on Eve was actually really helpful in the long run, short term. It was the original sin, right? And it was because the Naga failed to um, zoom in on the um, on on on, <laughs> on the terms and conditions in a small font, if that makes sense. And that just tends to be the case with you know most of the creatures in the underworld. You know, all of their deals tend to come with the terms and conditions attached, but they would never read it uh, out loud. And so you you know before you make a deal with a Naga. Just ask them about the terms and conditions. The good and the good news is they cannot lie. Um, although they can, you know, they can um, they cannot lie. However, they've been known to lie by omission. So that is the one thing you you have to beware, uh, you know, as far as the nagas. And you know what's in it for the naga? A actual entertainment. Uh, the naga that did this, the snake that did this, had. Like just honestly, the, had a lot of fun, and then told the other nagas about this. And, and nagas get bored easily. That's why they travel up and down the tree. And you know, this was just one of their you know pillars, like one of their corner stories of like temptation. Uh, but really, you know, they're still here for the greater good, right? It's just their version of the greater good, maybe not the same as your version of the greater good, or the type of let's say, sacrifices um, that they would be willing to put you through may not be the same sacrifices that you yourself would like to go through. But they're not malicious beings. They are very territorial. Nagas are extremely territorial. They're extremely hierarchical as a society, right? So they have their queen and they have their king and they have their nobility. And again, like I said, it's a very pyramidal uh, type of structure. So everybody else is in support of, of, of the king and the queen. Now, going back really quickly... I apologize for jumping around, but rich topic. Um, let me finish the thought with Garudas or about the Garudas before I go into more, you know, depth and breadth on the Nagas as well. So what ended up happening and the reason you had this whole war is this. Between the Garudas, I mean, and, and, and the Nagas is this. Nagas were kind of confined to the underworld. But um, they were the ruling class. They still are the ruling class of their second world. Um, and they are ambitious uh, and curious. And they like pushing buttons um, that they believe they can get away with pushing. And so um, enough of them have um, observed Midgard and Middle Earth. 
and loved it and thought that that would be a very nice world for them to also rule. And as such, they actually started ascending to the surface of uh, planet Earth. And at one point, there were way too many Nagas at the face, you know, of, of, of Midgard. Uh, and a, a lot of them, you know, they essentially started taking over and Garudas came and it was, they were called essentially to help fix this. And Garudas won and the Nagas had to retreat back to the underworld. And that is where they remain and dwell as of right now. There are very, very few and far in between of them on planet Earth. Um, so they kind of, uh, you know, uh, they've been keeping to themselves quite a lot. Um, and so essentially to work with them, you may need to go to them. However, I will tell you this. Um, let's maybe talk about like what they're all about outside of knowledge. I kind of talk to you about knowledge a little bit. They're all about mysticism. Um, so they're, you know, the race uh, of elementals that is all about the mystical arts. They're all about the occult. Occult is in the hidden, not necessarily black magic. Although to be fair, they're fairly good at black magic also. Um, so the Nagas um, are very territorial. Um, they don't like sharing things. Um, they, despite, so, you know, because there's so much into mysticism and because they have some pretty high level um, and, and in-depth access codes to the Akashic records, they are the holders of some of the mysteries. Um, things that um, the Nagas are really good at are astrology, um, tarot, for instance. They can teach you tarot. Um, they're really good at numerology, for instance. Um, they're really good at alchemy, all kinds. Um and then sciences that are, you know, close to their realm of responsibility. So, you know, if they're into astrology and if they're um, the experts, so the local experts on astrology, they're also into astronomy as well. So it's kind of like one and the same. They don't really differentiate. The same thing, alchemy and chemistry is kind of like one and the same thing for them. And they go fairly in depth. Sacred geometry, obviously, right there. So... Because of that, right, because of their propensity for knowing mysteries, understanding mysteries, sharing mysteries with humanity, they have uh, established a lot of mystery schools um, and a lot of cults in Middle Earth, right? Because all it took really is a couple of serpents going up through the Yggdrasil tree to teach an adept or two. And, you know, the rest is history, right? And so um, that's why, especially like in ancient Egypt um, and even in, you know, um, the times of Lemuria, you had a lot of circles of the snake or circles of the cobra. You had that during Hinduism times as well. So it's not that everybody was against the Nagas. Some people really loved learning from the Nagas. And so very often you, you know, they would sponsor uh, different secret societies um, and, uh, you know, there would generally be one snake, one naga that would teach and, um, that type of, you know, snake would actually, um, be able to come temporarily and, and, and host, um, gatherings within those secret societies in their humanoid form and literally teach the mysteries. 
And uh, again, those were secret societies. Those were kind of like invite only things. And they had multiple initiations and levels of initiation. Um, and um, very often those initiations actually included consuming the uh, venom of the cobra uh, to see uh, or, you know, consuming it over time, larger and larger doses. And, you know, the adepts that survived were considered to be um, worthy of the mysteries. Um, in ancient Egypt, uh, some pharaohs, uh, but really mostly their uh, deities, like their pantheon, um, had uh, the snake or the cobra um, kind of like as, you know, on top of their, um, I wouldn't call them crowns, but like on, uh, on their heads, they had these um, constructions. Um, and so they, very often they would have the cobra there. That was not for nothing. It It is because um, that generally meant that that person passed the initiation from the Naga kingdom and um, kind of like tasted almost and got tested by the venom of the snake. And that was the price that they paid to understand and partake of the mysteries. Very often uh, the deities that were allowed to wear the symbol of the wajit um, was the name of the snake. Um, Again, like I said, passed through the initiations. Not everybody could wear that. You can just wear that if if you were not part of these secret societies. So very often the you know these um, you know the deities of the pantheon were actually initiated into the mysteries of the cobra, of the snake, or of the nagas. Uh, by the way, um, right now um, there are still some um, secret societies that work with the energy of the cobra. Um, Kundalini rising actually, and the whole Kundalini. Um, philosophy, shall we say, is um, a very, it's one of the teachings actually that came out initially from one of the secret societies that one kind of like, it didn't go mainstream, but certain things got leaked because there were um, very often um, a lot of secrecy associated with any of those societies. Like as an initiate, as an um, adept, you couldn't really quite share uh, what you were learning and so very few things actually leaked out and one of those things was the kundalini rising and like that is really the rising of the spirit of the snake or the spirit of the nagas um you know in you know from within your uh root technically it's not a root center it's it's uh, two inches below that but no again when when people like when the secret information is being leaked it's not always leaked in the most optimal way. I hate to say this. And so that's, you know, the whole Kundalini rising is really just so you know, if you're a big fan, know that that is the legacy of the Nagas. And they initially were just teaching it to very, very few people. Now, uh, Kundalini rising is part of Shakti rising. That is how I would prefer to call it, which is essentially working with the energies of the Divine Mother. And I made an episode about that if you're interested um, I think debunking the Kundalini myth um, is something along those lines. But if you are curious about more information on that, dig it up. It wasn't that long ago. I don't think. I think it was maybe four months ago that I made this. So if you want more info, it's out there. So um, the Nagas are actually fascinating. So they're really, really, they use venom um, to kill, but they mostly use their venom to heal as well. So they're great healers. Um and their venom is actually interesting because their venom also has a hierarchy in the same way that their um, society does. So the venom of their royalty, uh, royal family, is considered the most precious. And not for nothing, but um, that venom 
is the most potent and it can cure pretty much any Naga disease. And um, it's interesting because um, Nagas start secreting venom kind of like snakes when they get agitated or when they're feeling like a very strong emotion, they start secreting venom. Um, and, uh, you know, their queen uh, would, let's say she gets aggravated for no reason, uh, their royalty, their yeah, queen and king, and, 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 you know, they would collect the venom in cups um, and, you know, they would pass that on to their, um, you know, to their court, uh, because this is considered, it's, it's almost like, I don't know what would be like more expensive than diamonds here. Um, titanium, I think is weirdly more expensive than diamonds, but like, if you could think of a oh, radium, maybe like maybe one of those radioactive metals, something that's really, really, truly expensive, right? That is how precious the venom of the queen and the king of Nagas is to their kingdom um, and, and, and to their subjects because it's really, really, really hard to come by. And, you know, they're only able to make like a few drops at a time anyhow. Um, so it's, it's very precious. Um, Nagas guard treasure. Uh, part, <laughs> I mean, they're one of the, um, the races that brought in the alchemy and they taught a lot of alchemists too alongside, um, you know, some other folks that understood alchemy. Um, and so the turning lead into gold was actually very much uh, something that Nagas were obsessed with because they love gold. And you would notice with a lot of reptilians, that's kind of the case. Remember, dragons love gold. It's kind of like a cliche, right? They, you know, um, the dragons love gold and treasure. So do the snakes, by the way. They really love pretty much all reptilians are going to love gold, right? So they're like, ah, lead. Don't care about lead. Let's turn it into gold. Now it's it's pretty. And why do they also love gold? Unfortunately, there is no access to the actual sun um, from within the Naga kingdom. The Nagas have access to the black sun. And even that is a projection from where they are in the underworld. I may have made an episode about the black sun at one point. So dig it up. I'm pretty sure it exists. If not, definitely in the Q&A. I told you guys about the black sun. If you're curious about the black sun, um, there's not a lot of good information about the black sun and the one that does exist. It's super confusing. And it's, you know, people have really blackwashed the black sun, which really irks me and really pains me. And now somehow it's connected to the Nazis and Hitler and all of the bad things in life. And really, it's misunderstood. So if you want more information on the Black Sun, um, actually check out my book, 72 Keys to Manifestation, uh, An Ancient Path of a Modern Day Alchemist on Amazon. It has, I believe, a few chapters on the Black Sun and you know how to connect with it. Uh, but the Black Sun really um, is connected to the right side of your brain. And so your intuition, your you know spirituality, your creativity, a lot of those good things, right? So that is the sun that the Nagas... Um, feet from, if you will. Um, and that's why they're gold. And the reason they love gold so much is because it's their proxy and their connection to the white sun or the yellow sun that we currently, you know, we, we see in the sky and we don't really have a shortage of, but they do. And um, those are the Nagas. So they really, really love gold and treasure and jewelry. The Nagas are very, very connected to the Anunnaki uh, because like I said, when the Anunnaki were creating human race this rendition of the human race because it's been so many experiments you guys um 
the Nagi, the, 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 the Nagas were watching. And there's, you know, also been some cross-pollination between the two. You know, some Nagas now have, um, the you know, um, trace DNA from the Anunnaki. Um, and in general, they actually, they, they do work um closely together and they have some common you know they, they have some common goals and some they have some common projects um so they go way back um i would say um the nagas could be fairly fascinating like the amount of knowledge and understanding you can gain from working with them is phenomenal um they are not you know, these are not the type of beings that are going to be readily available and like thirsty to talk to you. Um, and, um, you know, that is why, you know, if you were seeking to connect to Nagas, um, A, they, they hate people that um, essentially you would need to descend two levels down into a parallel earth. Um, essentially, the way you would do that in a meditative state is you would close your eyes. You would imagine that there is almost like a pillar of light that connects um, our Earth, like a sphere of light. And then you would almost imagine, you know, two levels down, like similar Earths. And you would kind of like travel down, just descend to that level. And then there is a room, actually a cavern, that is like a, a, a meeting place or for anybody that wants to con communicate with Nagas or get to know that kingdom. There is like a meeting place inside of a cavern. Uh, it has like a large uh, black lake inside of there as well. But that is where the Nagas want to receive visitors. Trust me, you don't want it to accidentally just go up to um, the royal palace or something because Nagas get, again, very protective and very territorial and they may get pretty upset with you and, you know, all kinds... <laughs> I mean, I wanted to say all kinds of things can happen. Uh, but, I mean, yes and no. Like, obviously, they're not going to harm your physical body. That's not going to happen, that's for sure. But they, you know, you know, one thing that could happen is um, if they find that you're somehow breaking up their hierarchy or you're not respectful enough, they're just not going to want to help you is all. So you wouldn't go to the meeting place. And then um, there's a little bit of a line, but then there is this, you know, snake, uh, generally in a humanoid form that asks, you know, that would ask you, would greet you, would uh, take down, you know, put down your name and be like, what's your request? And having a request like, hey, I just want to meet, you know, one of the Nagas and, and chat or, you know, see if anybody would want to be my guide. You know, that is a very legitimate request. Always, 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 though, ask your Naga what's in it for them, right? Because some Nagas just want to share the knowledge and other Nagas want to get paid for it, if that makes sense. And the payments can really range. So, read the terms and conditions if you're long-term wanted to learn from the Nagas, if you want to enlist them as one of your teachers. Because unfortunately, with any creature that dwells in the underworld, there is some form of energy exchange and payback. It does not happen any other way. Okay, that was a lot about Nagas, huh? Um, I actually, you know what? I don't think we're going to do any other elementals today because uh, I want to for this um, episode to be slightly shorter if possible but I would love to take any questions you have on the Nagas or the elves or any other earth elemental from you know a past episode as long as it serves a collective I'm ready to receive the question okay so the question is um, Nagas and temptation um, do they really 
tempt people? Is that like a thing that they do? And should I be worried that if I work with them, they're going to tempt me into doing something that I don't want to do? No, I don't find that Nagas operate through temptation. Um, They can be a little bit tricky and very often they do have an agenda. But to be honest, Nagas get very bored very quickly. And so very often when they start working with a human, it's just because they're bored out of their minds. Because I mean, living in the caverns, I mean, I know, maybe I'm being judgy, but there's not a lot that's going on there. (laughs) And so that's why they need to travel. And that's why they need experiences. And that's why they actually really like working with humans. Again, uh, I actually, you know, remember how when we talked about the genies, I told you, no way. Like, I do not recommend that you work with a genie because genie, a genie is going to charge you triple for anything that it gives you. The Nagas are not the same. Like, if you provide enough entertainment value for them, they're just stick around. They're just going to stick around. And I mean, and by the way, some of you are going to have a propensity for the Naga kingdom. Um, you know, for instance, if you've had, I mean, dragons and Nagas are not the same. Dragons and snakes are not the same. But for instance, if you have a special affinity with a dragon kingdom, you're going to find that you get along with the Nagas fairly well as well. And it is just something that I recommend that you guys try. Try on for a size. Always ask what's in it for them. Like if the Naga says, hey, hey, I, you know, I'm bored and I just want to like help you or whatever. Or I, you know, I'm intellectually stimulated when I talk to humans from Midgard or something like that. Then that's perfect because that could be your best companion. Just make sure that there is no other hidden agenda, right? Because like, again, lying by mission, that's them. They can be trickster ponies. Um, sometimes I would tempt... Um, but I find that somehow it, it's always helpful for, hu- for the human being because there is, you know, if you're being tempted by a Naga, there's some upgrading in, in there for you, right? I find the Naga kingdom is extremely misunderstood. Um, I find that human-snake relationship is somewhat broken and snakes have been vilified, right? Again, at least in the Christian culture and, and you know, the Bible and all of that. As snakes are being associated with the devil. There is no connection between the devil and the snake. Can I just set the record straight? There are a lot of things that are true about the devil. The devil being the snake is not one of them. Not one of them. Different vibrations. And again, I said this before and I'll say this again. Use your discernment and use your third eye when I say controversial things like that because I want you to know for sure. How would you know that I'm lying? This is how you would know. You would close your eyes, focus on your third eye, and you would imagine a sphere of energy that is the devil. And then you would imagine a snake. And now tell me, is that one and the same thing? Or are they different? Because, or even try like placing a snake inside of that, like the, the vibrational field of the devil. They don't even match. And like when things like don't match like that, when you're looking at them with the third eye, that means that they don't belong to the same thing. It's not the same energy because birds of a feather stick together. Similar energies are magnetized to one another. And do you see how the energy of the devil and the energy of the snake are repelling one another? Are you you able to see that? Because that is the truth, right? They're not one and the same at all. Um, In fact, there is a lot about, you know, the feminine wisdom 
that the snake contains. You know, if I were to pick one symbol of feminine wisdom, it would be either the owl or the snake, right? So there is a big and deep lesson in understanding the archetype of the snake, working with the energies of the snake. Enough of you are naturally resonating with that type of wisdom. Some of you came in past lives and have gone through the initiation of the cobra in one of these occult societies or anything. If you go through an initiation of the cobra once, what ends up happening is cobra or a snake ends up joining you as your totem animal. And 12% of humanity right now has cobra as their totem animal. That is huge, you guys, right? So as a society, it doesn't serve us to say snakes are bad and snakes are the devil. And then, you know, one-tenth, even more so, more than one-tenth of humanity is actually so incredibly connected to the snake, it's not even funny. And snake could be your greatest protector. So for at least, at least 12% of you, snake and having a relationship with snakes as well as the Naga kingdom is a game changer, you guys. So no, we cannot take things at face value just because it's an agenda of somebody else who wants to keep you controlled and contained. We have to use discernment, right? What is right for one person can be completely off for another person. That's why I hate dogma so much, right? So for a large chunk of you, working with a snake is not relevant. It may not be interesting. It may not be where your greatest learnings lie. And then there is another group for whom this is a lifesaver. And for those of you, I've told you about the Naga Kingdom today because, again, I said uh, that they're getting a bad rep. Um, they are one of those kingdoms that, you know, it feels kind of like right now that it's been exiled because, again, that is what the Garudas did, right? They essentially ex exiled um, the Nagas back into where they were originally supposed to be. And so there's a little bit of that vibration around the Nagas, around being not recognized, not appreciated, not enough, right? Which is very actually similar to like, like the not enoughness humanity can totally relate to. And that is why there is a desire within the Naga kingdom to be appreciated. There is a desire uh, for the Naga kingdom to be recognized because of that to give as well. So they can be recognized for the wonderful work that they're doing. And they are great teachers, believe it or not, right? Because again, access to knowledge. And it is not so easy to start all of these occult societies, right? And teach humanity astrology. I'm not saying they're the only ones with that knowledge, but they were one of the beings that were incredibly instrumental in, in helping astrology and numerology not just be birthed on this planet, but also take root, right? And so I wouldn't want to underestimate the impact that the Naga Kingdom had on planet Earth as well as humanity as a whole. And I would love if we can be a little bit more open-minded. Um, I wanted to see if there's another question. Um, maybe I'll take one more question from the collective. Around anything that we discussed today, anything, as long as it serves the collective, I'm here to receive it. How The question is, how are the Nagas connected to the apples? Okay, interesting question. Fair. So the Nagas are... Also, so remember how I told you they go up and down the tree. They don't just go up and down the tree. They guard the tree. Uh, specifically, the Nagas guard two trees. They, tr they guard the tree of life and they guard the tree of uh, knowledge. Uh, also called the tree of wisdom. One and the same thing, really. Um, the tree of life is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it is the tree that connects the nine worlds. And it is keeping records 
first of everything that is living and not living across the nine worlds, as well as it is kind of like the central axis from which everything else emanates and everything else stems from. It's like this obelisk um, that is essentially being the core and the center of that life force energy. If the tree of life was to die, um, neither of the nine worlds uh, could survive at all, right? So it's, it's kind of like in the same way that for any, you know, let's say any planet, right, to exist, you need to have a core of the planet, right? In the same way that a human being has a heart. You know, our reality, right, our localized reality is built um, upon this tree of life. And again, it is both a literal concept and a figurative concept, right? Um, but there is a lot about it that's not an, an, an analogy. There's actually literally, like if you were to close your eyes, you would see a snake crawling up the tree. That's the tree of life. Um, tree of life has apples on it. And by the way, so does the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge is another tree that um, the snakes guard. Um, the tree of the official official tree of knowledge actually is located in the Naga kingdom. There are some small offshoots and the Garden of Eden had a small tree of knowledge, but that was not the original tree of knowledge. Again, the original tree of knowledge belongs to the Naga kingdom because they're guarding it, they're guiding it. The tree of knowledge has the apples also. Uh, the tree of life has the kinds of apples that give you immortality. Um, the tree of knowledge has the kind of apple that gives you perfect cognition, perfect knowledge, like access to almost like think of the access to the Akashic record field and the informational field in the form of an apple. And so um, the Nagas, because they are in charge of the tree of knowledge, are also in charge of the apples that grow in the tree of knowledge. And so is that the only way to get knowledge? Absolutely not. Is that one of the best ways to get knowledge on, on the face of planet Earth? Absolutely, yes. And so um, <laughs> it's actually quite fascinating. But yes, um, you know, when Eve partook of the apple, it was the apple of the knowledge tree, right? And again, it can only you can only partake when Anaga is offering it to you. If you just partake of the tree of knowledge where the Naga is not around, it's gonna it's gonna act like a regular apple. It's not gonna have the impact because it's um the snake is gonna the snake needs to be invested and to want you to get that knowledge. So that is how the snake is connected to the apple. Specifically, the apples of knowledge, uh, the the apples of the trees of knowledge, um, you can only get it through a snake. Um, the tree of life is a little different. The snakes don't really give. They don't really have the permission to give, um, you know, apples away from the tree of life. That is more deities and gods. You know, that is their kind of like clearance level. Um, but yeah, that was a, an interesting question. We got to dive a little bit deeper into the myths as well. Um, and by the way, when there are trees of knowledge, like smaller trees of knowledge that are planted anywhere else in nine uh, earths, they're originally planted by the Nagas. So they would take like a, a branch of the original tree and they would plant it in one of the kingdoms. And then, you know, they can take it back anytime that they want, essentially, and that tree dies. And also if the tree of knowledge dies in the Naga kingdom, all of the other knowledge trees die. And essentially, you know, that would never happen because that would signify essentially the, the end of the cycle for, for this reality. 
I guess I shouldn't say it would never happen. It would never happen unintentionally because cycles come and go all the time. Uh, what I mean is, you know, what, what it would be quite impossible for our reality to exist if the tree of knowledge was dead and no longer operational. Because there are just certain things, certain aspects of our reality that are pillars and that are so critical that they like, they must exist and they must be real for our reality to keep going. Alrighty, you guys. Well, I hope this was helpful. Um, we're going to be back with more elementals. What are, what are we going to do? We're, you know, <laughs> uh, we always take longer than I originally anticipate. On that note, I wish you a blessed day and a great week uh, ahead. And I'll see you in the next one. Cheers, you guys. Bye.